uh, turn with you to Romans chapter 6. And I want to build on uh, a couple of weeks ago when I last was up here ministering, I spoke from, um, just to refresh ourselves and for those that may not be aware, we, we focused specifically on Romans chapter 6 verse 11. And uh, we were looking specifically at one word in which the Bible says, Reckon yourselves dead indeed to sin. This word, reckon. And uh, it's a, um, in, in Christian circles, uh, there's an understand, there's variations of understanding in which and by which how holiness and righteousness is achieved in the Christian life and, and various different things of how the Spirit works and what's our part, what's God's part. And we touched upon those things the other week. And so, um, again, as I expressed, this was a result of various things that I experienced in the journey of my Christian life in ministry, and uh, and I share these things uh, uh, today and also uh, a few weeks ago as uh, as, uh, I have learned them and God has revealed them to me. Now, you may remember I made a statement or a quote from a particular leader of the previous fellowship that I was part of, um, in which um, he was uh, justifying his position on using various standards uh, for the Christian life and, uh, and also addressing the error that some have in relation to the reckoning of Romans chapter 6 verse 11, in which he said, now let me state it again, he said that the, rec- the error that people have is that the reckoning automatically produces the action without self-effort or work. So once we reckon on the reality of our union with Christ and so forth, somehow that then computes and we bear fruit. And there's an element of truth to that. But what place does um, our self-effort have in this process? And so we touched upon this, both sides, briefly a few weeks ago. Now I did say this, I said there are two tensions to this particular truth. And so, um, because the reality is, is that we are required to make choices. There's an element of response, human responsibility that we can't ignore and has to be under, clearly understood. And so, it's that that I want to focus on because there's God's part and there's man's part. There's the Holy Spirit and there's men. And so, there are various tensions. If you tend to, uh, you have to calibrate these, so to speak, Otherwise, you can lean too much to this side or lean too much to that side. So much, too much to the grace of God, too much to the human side. And so, because this is really what Paul is addressing when he talks about God's grace, because they had tended to um, uh, abuse God's grace by way of living a way in a life that was unrighteous and unholy before God. And Paul is saying this is unacceptable, one, because of your position in Christ, and two, he then elaborates, as we will see today, on the practical um, responsibilities and effort that must be involved in living the Christian life. And so there are two tensions. And I want to focus, or I want to tighten, if you want to call it, uh, the tension, I want to tighten the tension of human responsibility this morning. Um, uh, And again, still acknowledge uh, in context and perspective the grace of God in this process. This process of righteousness and holiness that the Christian is encouraged to perfect in the fear of God, that the the Christian is encouraged to pursue holiness and peace and so forth as it expresses in uh, Hebrews 12. 
And so I want to uh, deal with this and understanding this principle that the foundation, as I proceed and, and tend to lean towards this side, let, let's not um, disconnect from the reality of God's grace is the foundation of our position in Christ Jesus and it is the foundation of sanctification in the Christian life. We have to learn to appropriate the grace of God in order that we can live and have dominion over sin. Our brother touched upon this this morning when he said, present your body as a living sacrifice. Quite interestingly, we're going to get into that word present because that's what we find here in, the, in, in Romans 6. And so um, God's grace is the foundation. The heart must be established in grace. There's no questions about that. So uh, I don't want to repeat myself in relation to that. But then Paul says, Reckon yourselves dead indeed to sin and alive unto God. You must understand this biblical truth of your position in Christ and then you must practically work towards living it. Obviously by God's grace. I'm not promoting works-based salvation. I'm not promoting that it's in your own strength because the moment you proceed on that basis, you will fail. Haven't we all said, I'll never do that again? And what do you do? You do it again. So it doesn't rest in human strength when I talk about human responsibility, that must be rooted in not human strength, but rather in God's grace. And I want to look at the balance and I want to see what the scripture says because I think it is important for us to understand this and define our part or our responsibility uh, as we work out our own salvation, the Bible says, with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you. Willing to will and to do for his good pleasure. So let's look, because in Romans chapter 6, I believe Paul gives us practically uh, the answer to what he is teaching us. And we know in verse 11, we see where it says there, reckon yourselves dead indeed to sin, that you must uh, uh, reason the fact that I died with Christ and now I'm alive to God. The Holy Spirit lives in me. And now I must walk and live as a Christian. I must order my conduct aright. We must be working towards this through the, the grace of God that's working in us. So let's read in chapter 6 of Romans, verse 15 through to verse 23. Now Paul writes and he says, What then shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? Certainly not. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves to whom you obey? Um, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free, set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness." I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawless, uh, lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. For 
Uh, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and at the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death and the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. So Peter kind of has touched upon it, and I'll get to it a little bit later. But the issue of presenting yourself is important here, and I'm going to go into that more deeply a little later. But I first want to address with you a fundamental principle in the kingdom of God that God has established in relation to his creation, being you and I, and that is what we call human volition. That is that each in, in, when God created man, he constituted in the creation, in you and I, and he created us, the freedom and the capability to choose for ourselves. It's the freedom to choose, human volition. And so God put that into the creation that is self-explanatory when you understand here is God. He uh, creates the, the Garden of Eden. He puts Adam and Eve in it. And, uh, and then he puts a tree right in the middle and says, you're not to eat and touch of this particular, eat of this fruit because the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And so all of a sudden, man is confronted with a choice. And a choice that God has put there in, in, in his sovereignty, he has given men the ability to, and freedom to choose, the capacity to do so. You know, the age-old argument is God the author of sin. You know, if God in his foreknowledge knew that it was going to happen, then, you know, surely he's the author of it. No, he constituted, he, in his foreknowledge he knew, but he didn't predetermine the action. He constituted in his creation that men would have the capability and freedom to choose. And we call it free will. And, uh, and, and, and the way in which that works, that God in his sovereignty can and does override free will at various times. We see this in the Bible. But, and, but, but fundamentally, this is the rule. This is the Lord, but there are, there are exceptions to it. So God gives us the freedom and power to choose. And the, the reality is, is God will not make our choices for us. Amen? He, uh, uh, he can orchestrate circumstances. Uh, the Bible says that do not receive the grace of God in vain. God's grace draws us. No one comes to God unless he draws us. Uh, the initiative obviously is God's, not rooted in man. But nevertheless, we can either receive or reject the message of the gospel. We have a choice to make. And that choice is through, we see it again right throughout the scriptures. And that brings us into the realm of human responsibility before God. There is a sovereignty of God, and there is a level of sovereignty of man as constituted by God. And that's important for us to understand. And so when we talk about the issue of the Christian life and the, and the life of sanctification and the pursuit of uh, righteous living before the Lord and holiness, it's not going to be automatic. God is working in us, absolutely, but we've got to work it out. 
and it's going to involve our effort. It's going to involve us in, uh, uh, making cho- various choices in our lives. Uh, and the, the truth is uh, we, we, we tend to make wrong choices. Amen? We tend to make wrong choices, uh, and we are all guilty of it, and that's just the nature uh, of life, and we understand that. But God has put this, uh, this, this quality into the human race uh, and in creation. He crowned men, one man said, he crowned men with the, that divine prerogative, the freedom of the will. And in doing so, God limited himself. In the sense that, no one's going to be. God, you, you, your choice will determine your destiny. You do not have to receive. God desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. That's literal. But that doesn't mean everybody's going to be saved. That doesn't mean everyone's going to heaven because of this very truth that we're dealing with. Now, why did God set this in place? And it's, it's a very obvious one because God didn't create robots. He didn't create robots because God, ultimately, God is love. And in his desire for relationship with his creation, then he must give man the capacity to do likewise, to love. We love him because he first loved us. And so there are choices here and love is reciprocated and love is manifested. And so God didn't create us as robots. He gave us the ability to choose. And we know that love fundamentally is a choice, not a feeling. Not a, a, not, it is a choice in which we say, I'm going to love God. And love is demonstrated uh, not by our words ultimately, but by our actions. So it involves choices. It involves effort. So you can... I see that. And so God made us with the ability to love him, to serve him, to worship him freely. And he gave us the power to choose. So when we think of that principle and we understand that the Bible tells us, now reckon yourselves dead indeed to sin. Paul is saying, listen, this is the spiritual truth. This is the spiritual reality of your union with Christ Jesus. You are saved, you are in Christ, you are justified by faith. Here you are, you are saved and sanctified and set apart as a result of what Christ has accomplished on the cross. But now you must reckon yourselves dead indeed to sin. Now there's an element of human responsibility and choice and effort that is now going to have to engage in this process of of living a holy life and a righteous life before the Lord. And so that's that's what we're dealing with in this text when Paul is dealing with the issues of righteousness and holiness in the Christian life. And he's dealing with here the responsibility to choose. Because let's face it, the Christian life involves Everyday choices, does it not? We all are faced daily, we're choosing daily, we're making good decisions, bad decisions, right decisions, wrong decisions. And so the, 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 uh, the whole process of the Christian life uh, reflects the fact that we are free moral agents and we have the ability to choose. And the truth is, is when it comes to living and walking before the Lord, we have to choose righteousness. We have to choose it again and again and again 
because we are constantly facing the temptations of life. We are constantly dealing with the issues of life. We are constantly processing the spirit of the age in which we live. And we must choose and choose and choose and consistently exercise that aspect of choice. And as I said, sometimes we don't make the wrong choices. That's the truth. We've all done it. But the issue of choice and effort is what I'm emphasising here. And uh, I know um, uh, in, in, in the years, in the books and in the, the things that I have read, I remember a statement by one particular uh, man and he said, uh, the Christian life requires habitual effort. Habitual effort. And uh, when you think about that, there, there, it, it, that's a reality. Every day we've got to get up. Every day we've got to go about our business. Lord, what is it that you want me to do? It involves consistently choices and habitual effort in the Christian life to fulfill the will of God. Now again, that's all rooted in the grace of God. Paul says, I've laboured more than all. I've done this, I've done that, I've done this, I've done been But he says, all by the grace of God. He understood that. He didn't, wasn't promoting himself. He was establishing the two realities and striking the right tensions between both. So, again, I'm not making the point of living the Christian life in our own strength. The moment you go there, you're going to fall into problems. And I said this. Remember, Paul, if you read Romans 7, Paul says, the more I tried to do right, the more I did wrong. The more I tried to live by some external form or externalism or law or, form, or some formality of religion, uh, some rules, he says, the moment I said, I'm not going to do that, he says, my flesh and the sin principle that is within me uh, overcome me and I, fa- I failed and I fell short. And so Romans 7 deals with that factor of us thinking that it's based only in human effort because it's not. Because at the end of that, Paul says, who will deliver me from this body of sin? Who? And he says, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And he then proceeds into Romans chapter 8, which is the pinnacle of the Spirit-filled life, of how the Holy Spirit empowers us and enables us to live the life. The law of the Spirit of life in Jesus Christ has made me free from the law of sin and death. And therefore we are able to now live in a manner that we can have dominion over sin and we can walk worthy before the Lord. And Paul would even say in verse 11, uh, I think it's 15 or thereabouts, 12, he, he would say that we must put to death, or verse 11, put to death the deeds of the flesh so that we have that power. We have dominion over sin. We're under grace, remember? So we have the ability to live a spirit-filled life, the ability to have power over sin. And more than that, We have the source that enables us, and that is the Holy Spirit himself. Remember Jesus said, if I go, I will send to you another. And in John's Gospel, he clearly refers to him as the helper or the comforter. And that is interesting, and I want to tie this together, because the Greek word here is parakletos, or thereabouts, and so it comes from two Greek words, but the word para means that, uh, that he comes near and he comes to our side. 
And so we have, amen, our helper who empowers us, who guides us into all truth, who teaches us, uh, and, and, and Holy Spirit, uh, Romans 8, tells us he intercedes for us on our behalf. And so we have the Holy Spirit. Thank God for the parakletos, the Holy Spirit. He comes. And that is, again, emphasising God's part. That's emphasising the, the, the foundation. But again, what is our part? So let's go to our text now. And I want you to look at verses, we'll start at verse 15. What then? Shall we continue? Because we are not under law, but under grace. I mean, continue to live in sin. To continue to allow our body, actually, to become a vehicle of sin is really what Paul's talking about. And he says, absolutely not. Certainly not. And then he begins to reason this reality and truth. So if you look at verse 16, he says, actually, before I do that, I just want to make the point three times. Peter touched on it when he read Romans 12 and the, the Romans 12 where it says, present your body as a living sacrifice is the same word that we find now here in Romans chapter 6 and Paul uses it three times from verse 15, 16 onwards. He uses this phrase, present yourselves, present your members, present. And so there is an emphasis on presenting. And so again, let us understand, well, what is the Spirit of God telling us when it says present? Is it something that's automatic or, or is there something that we have to do? And clearly, Paul is establishing our responsibility before God because look at verse 16. He says, Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves, slaves to obey, you are that one's slave? And so he's, he's laying the foundation. Well, it comes down to this, simply this. Who you present yourself to, who you present your body to, and that in presenting your body, you are presenting your, your whole being. That's what it's talking about. It's not just your body. The body is symbolic of the whole person because this body houses the person, the spirit and the soul. So, who, uh, so he says, verse 16, Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to, that's the one that you will obey? He says, you are that one slave to whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. So you can present yourself towards sin, which leads to death, or you can present yourself towards righteousness or to obedience, and which leads to righteousness. So you can see here what we're talking about to whom you present. So let's, let's just define this for a moment because I, in the King James Version of the Bible, it uses, in my new King James, it says present, present. You might have a different one that might have a different word. In the, new, in the King James, it says yield, yield and yield. So to us in the English, we tend to think present, yield, they kind of, you know, the, the, they portray different concepts. And even in the Greek, if you separate it, there's a different concept as well. And, I, and I'll show you that in just a moment because 
in uh, this word yield is not what is being primarily expressed in Romans chapter 6. In actual fact, if you wanted to find where the word is expressed, it's found in Hebrews. There's a different Greek word that were associated with yield, and it's not in this one, but it's found in Hebrews 12 verse 11, where it talks about God's discipline, and as a result of God's discipline, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those that have been trained by it. So in other words, God's discipline is such that when we are not walking in obedience to him, he will orchestrate circumstances, he will bring discipline into our lives, so in order to humble us, in order to break us in order to get our attention so that we will surrender and yield to him because we have been disobedient, rebellious and stubborn and stiff-necked as human nature tends to be. And so God causes a yielding. That's that context. But when we use the word, in the New King James, when it uses the word yield here, that's not what the scripture is saying. That's why the New King James uses the word present. So again, well, what does present mean? It comes again from two, uh, it's the word in the Greek, uh, um, parastemi. And it means to present. It comes from two Greek words. Again, para, meaning near. And, and histemi, which means to stand. So in other words, it, what we are being called to do is to stand beside, to set at hand, to present ourselves to God. Now think about that. Because it's the same word, present your bodies as a living sacrifice to God. Present yourselves and your members to God unto holiness and righteousness. And it incorporates, uh, there are other words that are associated, let's bring context here. It, uh, there's the word assist, bring, come, give yourself, present yourself, prove yourself, provide yourself, show, um, stand, and it also means yield in that sense. But that's not, if you focus on yield, you miss the point. There is effort, that's what I'm trying to say. You have to do something. You have to act. And so God is calling us to stand with him, amen, to stand in the truth, to stand in righteousness and to stand in holiness before him practically in our lives. So think about it because if, if the Holy Spirit is the paraclete and then we have this word present which means uh, parastemi, they're both, we, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit comes to empower us but he can only work to the degree in which we determine that we're going to work with him. So we have to stand side by side in a literal sense. So you have to present yourselves. Whoever you present yourself to, that's the one you will obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness, exactly what Paul says in verse 16. So let's go to verse 17. But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. So he's, he's, he's telling them, uh, this is, thank God that though uh, you were once slaves of sin, you are now, in their positional sense, uh, you obeyed from the heart the gospel of Jesus Christ in which now you have been delivered from the power of sin. So, again, the gospel must be obeyed. 
The gospel has to be believed. It has to be received. A choice has to be made. Who will we present ourselves to? Let's go verse 18. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Now notice that having men in the past tense, this is something that has, when we were born again, this is what happened. Having been set free from sin, you've become slaves of righteousness. Now think about that. Slaves of righteousness. We don't like that. When we hear that word slave, it's like, oh, I knew Christianity was all about we have to do this, we have to do that. <laughs> no, the Bible, when it uses the word slave, is the word we have, a bondservant. Paul writes it at the beginning of Romans, Paul an apostle, a bondservant of God. And so it's important to understand that we are not slaves unwillingly. Anyone that has to serve God against their will, God help you. Because we have to embrace this with our whole heart. God is looking, that's why Paul says, you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine. It starts with our desire, our will, our love, our willingness. Not to, when we talk about slavery, we're talking about being a willing slave. That I am, sub, I am submitting myself and I'm bringing myself into subjection. I'm presenting myself uh, and I won't be conformed to this world, but I'll be transformed by the renewing of my mind because I am a slave of God. I am bound to do right. I'm bound to live right. I'm bound to obey the Lord. This is the standard that we have. I know it's not always the practical experience, but that's, this is the truth. This is the reality. So we have, having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. He says, I mean, let me ask you, do you consider yourself a slave of righteousness? Not in a legalistic sense, but as a bondservant of God because you love him with all your heart. That's why the Bible says his commandments are not burdensome. It's a delight to do his will. It's only a burden. It's only a burdensome when it clashes with our willingness. It's only a burden when we want to do something else. And so we're slaves by choice. Look at verse 19. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members of slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members of slaves of righteousness for holiness. You see, he's telling them, you once were slaves to sin. You once presented your body as a slave to sin. And you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and lawlessness, living in sin. But listen, he says, so now present your members. So he's contrasting. You once presented yourself to sin. Now present yourself to God. Present yourself to righteousness. Present yourself to holiness. So he says, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. Holiness. You see, holiness for holiness is what Paul is emphasizing here. And he's not talking about now our position in Christ because we know Ephesians tells us that having been placed in Christ we are 
have, we have been made holy. We have been declared holy. We are sanctified. When God looks at us, uh, we, he sees that we have been cleansed from sin. We are imputed with the, and, uh, uh, the righteousness of God. And so that's our position. But now we have to live a sanctified life and we have to live a holy life unto the Lord. And so this is the process of sanctification and we must, live a sep- we must be separated to God. That's why when Paul writes the whole book of Romans in v- from chapter 1, th- in chapter 6 there's practical instructions but through to chapter uh, uh, 12 he shifts and the, chapter 12 onwards becomes practical instruction and his first words are, I beseech you, I plead with you brethren by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that perfect and acceptable will of God. And so can you see here, this is exactly what Paul, having stated it explicitly in, in Romans 12, verse 1 and 2, he's now, this is what he's expounding in, in chapter 6 when he's talking about these things. Present your members as instruments of righteousness for holiness. That's the position. Look at verse 20. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Now listen to that. Meaning when when we were slaves of sin, we knew no better. We were like a a pig in mud. Literally. We knew no more. We knew no better. That's what sinners do. They sin. And more than that, they were free in regard to righteousness because uh, there was nothing imputed to them. They're not saved. But now to us who are in Christ and we are separate, we are saints, we are sanctified, we are holy, now we are not free in regard to righteousness. You can't just abuse God's grace, which is what Paul's saying in chapter 6 at the beginning. Shall we continue to sin so that God's grace may abound? Absolutely not. The contrary, you are not free, and you are not free to righteousness now, but you are obligated towards righteousness. There is an expectation from God that you will live right and do right, and you will make the right choices that are, you are confronted with on a daily basis, and you must say, is this right? Is this acceptable in the sight of God? Is this holy? So Paul says, you were, you were once free, but you're not free in regards to righteousness. And then he says in verse 21, for what fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? What fruit was there as a result of sin in your life? Nothing. The fruit of death and destruction and misery and pain. And as he says, we're, we're, we're ashamed of those things, but that was the fruit that we bore as a result of the principle of sin in our lives and the choices we made. True? Because has every sinner made the same choices? Has every sinner done the same thing? No, because everyone makes different choices in life. And this is the element of, and so too in the Christian life, when it comes to holiness, it comes down to choices. 
It comes down to decisions. It comes down to the effort that, is, uh, uh, that we are uh, putting towards living a life that is acceptable and walking worthy before him. He says, what fruit did you have then of those things for which you are ashamed? Notice he uses the word fruit. I know we talk about the works of the flesh and the fruit of the spirit, but he uses the word fruit here because at the end of the day, the principle of sin at work in our lives accompanied with the bad choices we make, that's the fruit we bore. In the same way in the Christian life, through the principle of God's grace and God's Holy Spirit, we make choices and we can bear fruit to holiness or we can bear fruit towards sin unto death. That's what the scripture's talking about. So, for the end of those things is death, as we just said. But look at verse 22. But now having been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. Your fruit to holiness. And that's why we have to bear that fruit. And it's important that we understand the process of fruit bearing, that is uh, the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of God's grace, because if we just base it in works, then it's not going to happen. But if we, if we understand God's grace, we understand the Holy Spirit, if we are presenting ourselves to God, saying, Lord, here's what you have done, here's what I need to do, and together, in partnership with God, we can live a life that is acceptable in the sight of God. doesn't mean that we're perfect and we never make the wrong choice, because we do, and we have. And thank God that if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thank God for that. We need that. But we nevertheless are called by God and we are responsible to choose, to follow, to employ our, our, our will and our choices in this process of, and pursuit of holiness. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27, he says, But I discipline my body. And I bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. There's a principle here. He says, I discipline, the issue of self-discipline is, is, is critical. And he says, I, bring, I discipline my body. I bring it into subjection. Because I must conduct and live in a certain way that is acceptable, not just before God, but before men. And isn't it interesting that he goes into the next chapter... And he says, moreover, brethren, chapter 10, verse 1, moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware or ignorant. And he's referring to Israel. And he talks about how Israel, how they all passed through the Red Sea, how they all uh, went out of Egypt, and they all were under the cloud. They all baptized into Moses and so forth. And he says, but with most of them, many of them, God was not pleased. And then it talks about the, what, the sins. They, they were unholy. They were unrighteous. And then he goes on to say in, uh, that they are examples in verse 11. They are examples for you and I as Christians to look at Israel and their experience so that we won't repeat the same errors. But then he says this in verse 13. He says, No temptation, you, no temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Think about it. God says, I'm faithful. 
There's no temptation that I will allow into your life that you cannot bear it. And not only that, I'll even provide a way of escape for you. All you have to do is make the right choice. (laughs) And how many times we fail. In other words, God says, I do my part, you've got to do yours. We are free moral agents to choose. God will not violate our will in this sense. And we need to understand that. Oh, well, thank God for his grace. That doesn't give you freedom to do what, what is right, uh, every, everything that's wrong. And, we, and abuse the grace of God. We have to make choices, choices that are rooted in our willingness to love him and obey him because, you know what, I'm a slave to God. I want to serve the Lord with all my heart. I want to love him with all my heart. I want to please him with all my heart is the motivation. Side by side, we have the paracletus and the parastemia or something like that anyways. But we are to stand with, God stands with us, we stand with God. And in the power of his spirit, we, and through his grace, we can live a life that is acceptable and pleasing to him. Can you say amen? So I pray that we understand the issue of choice and human effort in appropriating the grace of God in the Christian life this morning. God bless you. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you, Lord, for the grace of God. I thank you, Lord, for the truth of the gospel. And God, as your word so clearly teaches us, it shows us the it gives us an understanding of the principles and of the truths that surround the Christian life and the life of sanctification, the life of righteousness and holiness, Lord, in that which relates to our responsibility and our choice. And I pray, Lord, as we would go forward in this, that we would be acutely aware of our responsibility to present ourselves to present ourselves. And maybe we do need to yield because we have been stubborn and you have, Lord, brought about some degree of discipline and we must yield the peaceable fruit of righteousness. And so I pray if that's necessary for us to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, then so be it, Lord. But let us, God, on the flip side, present ourselves willingly because we love you, we want to please you, we want to serve you. In Jesus' name, I pray your blessing. Amen. God bless you all. Time of fellowship and tea and coffee.